and welcome to this episode of PageCast, a book-focused podcast brought to you by Jonathan Paul Publishers. I'm Nicola Bruns and in this episode, I have the pleasure of chatting with the legendary Dame Prue Leith. We rewind the clock on her earliest foodie memories, touch on a few of her most treasured recipes and learn how to make bliss using just about any form of bread available. Enjoy the episode and thanks for listening. The next hour is bound to make us all a little bit hungry. I encourage you to take a moment, walk to your kitchen, pop a slice of crusty bread into your toaster, slather it with your favorite topping, mine being a thick layer of butter, and sit back and enjoy our conversation with phenomenal Prulith regarding life, a few interesting stories, and her latest cookbook, Bliss on Toast. Dame Prue Leith is a broadcaster, writer, former restaurateur, and a judge on the television show The Great British Bake Off. Many don't know that Prue was born in Cape Town, but after leaving school, she moved to Paris to study and decided that her future was in food. In 1969, she opened Leith's, her own fine dining restaurant in Notting Hill, was awarded a Michelin star in the 1980s. She went on to write columns and cookbooks and became a regular broadcaster about food on shows including The Great British Menu. 1975 came about and she opened Leith's School for Food and Wine, which trains professional chefs and amateur cooks. Prue replaced Mary Berry as a judge on the Great British Bake Off in 2017. She has written eight novels and lives with her husband in Gloucestershire. Did I get that right, Prue? Gloucestershire. I'm never sure about these pronunciations. Gloucestershire. Yeah. Gloucestershire. No, I don't know why it's got a C in there. It should be G-L-O-S. Gloucestershire. <laughs> Prue joins me now to recall stories and to chat about Bliss on Toast, her latest cookbook. Thank you very, very much for joining us. Welcome to Cape Town. Thanks, Nicola. I arrived yesterday morning and it is just bliss to be in Cape Town. I, I absolutely love it and it's perfect weather today. I want to start by asking, what does Prue Leith have for breakfast? Uh, I didn't have any breakfast. I try to skip breakfast. I know it's not diet. Uh, well, I don't know. It's become quite fashionable to starve, isn't it? You, you know, so, so miss a meal and starve. Well, I do that most mornings. I don't eat breakfast because I'm not hungry in the morning. And since I'm so greedy and I try, tend to eat too much lunch and drink too much wine and can't resist an ice cream and all the rest of it, I think it's better if I skip what I can. Tell me about being greedy, because I've heard you say that a few times before, and I think it serves as the cornerstone to how you operate. Well, it is. I mean, it's not greedy just for food, which, of course, I am, but I'm sort of greedy for life. You know, I'm very energetic and, and pretty upbeat and glass half full. You know, I always want to do the next thing. And that's meant I've had a, you know, I've had a very long life. I'm 80, I'll be 83 next month. So I've had a long life and a very interesting one. And mostly, I think, because I'm greedy, because I think, oh, I'd like to do that. Oh, I'd want, I'd want one of those. Why don't we have a try at that? So I've, you, when you very sweetly went through my entire life in your introduction, you forgot one of the most important things, which is that I opened a chef school in Pretoria. Yes, my apologies. Yes. Which is called the Prulith Culinary Institute. Rather pompous name, I think, don't you? But anyway, it's, I, I'm so glad to be here. That's one of the reasons I'm here, because they had a really tough time in, during COVID. Imagine a, a school that has 100 students in it and evening classes as well and weekends and absolutely packed. Suddenly a curtain comes down. No, no students, no fees, nothing. But you've still got the structure and the wages to pay and everything. But they survived so well. They went online, started online courses, and now they're back to doing 
um, physical ones as well. So I'm so pleased, and I do congratulate them because, mm. God, it was horribly. Mm. It was very, very hard mm. for them. And placement past COVID into restaurants, you know, has that transition kind of recovered? Yes, absolutely. And, I mean, one of the things I, I often say this, but it's the thing that I'm so proud of is that if I go into – I haven't done this this time because I've only just arrived, but quite often if I go to some posh restaurant in um, Cape Town or somewhere, I'll ask them where they get their sh- chefs from and their – work experience students and so on and most of them will have at least some students from from Leith's and if they've been to Leith's they're really proud of it and they wear these um, chef's whites and on the back of them is something like you know pruleith.com and I can't I'm such an egotist and it's such a buzz to see my name on the back of all these chef's jackets and the fact that they're so proud of the college or the um, institute that they still wearing them when they're at work. It's great. And that you played a phenomenal role in their Yeah, I'm very pleased. I'm very pleased about that. Definitely. You arrived in Cape Town yesterday. You're here for a few days. Mm. Is there anything specific that you come and eat in Cape Town? No, but I... Every time I come to Cape Town, somebody will tell me about a new restaurant that I have to go to. And so it's always rather difficult because I want to do everything. I mean, last night we went to a restaurant in, in the on the waterfront. We just wandered around and it was packed. I mean, every restaurant was absolutely heaving. But we got into uh, a Japanese one called Tang, and we had the most delicious food. I mean, Cape Town food is so reliably mm. good. It, it seems to me, and maybe I'm starry-eyed about it, but that you can re- walk into almost any restaurant and get really good food and fresh food. And, and a good range of diversity. Yeah. yeah. Ser- service sometimes needs <laughs> little to be desired. You might have to wait Send for an hour and a half. Pretoria, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tell me, why why Pretoria? Why did you open a school in Pretoria? Well, do you know, this is going to sound a very racist thing to say, but we were, I was really anxious to get students who would, who would want to be in the trade, who wanted to be professional chefs rather than posh northern suburbs young ladies who wanted to be able to do a perfect dinner party. Of course we'd like to have those, you know, but that's evening courses or, you know, short-time amateur courses. But I wanted professional students, and so we just thought Pretoria, because it's a very Afrikaans region, a lot of farmers, there's a lot of farming tradition, and the Afrikaans tradition of um, working hard and getting up early in the morning and doing your job properly seemed to me a good thing to go for, to aim it at sort of farmers' sons who would no longer be able to do farming, but could come and be chefs, and that worked up to a point. And, of course, now um, we have a much more diverse student body. And it's just terrific. I mean, it's improved so much. I I wish I didn't have to say this because um, I don't have anything to do with it, so I can boast about it. But the college has got better and better. When we opened, it was rather conventional, sort of French-based classical cooking. Now it's pan-African. We do all sorts of food from all over. And... That diversity of students has really helped us. How many students are in a given year? We have, I think, 96, I think. I may be guessing. I mean, I think it's about that. And, um, and, if they, and they are on, on an 18-month course. But we also do other courses mm-hmm. now, and we do masses of online courses. So we're much bigger than we look now. Because, you know, I think YouTube taught us that you can actually learn, learn things online that you thought was so physical 
that you couldn't learn them. Mm. I used to say you'll never be able to teach cooking on a computer because you can't smell it, you can't feel it. But if you have a tutor telling you, push your thumb into it, does it bounce back, you know, you can do it online. You have to be, we, the exams for the courses are still physical. You have mm. to turn up and mm. prove you can do it. <laughs> Let's take it back to the beginning. Your earliest memory of food or cooking. Did you grow up in a foodie household? Um, I grew up in a household we ate very well. Um, I, I, my father was a director of, ice, of um, African explosives, which makes dynamite. In Interesting childhood. <laughs> in, in Modfontaine. Well, it was good because he didn't go to the war because it was a protected occupation, making dynamite. Um, so, but so we lived very well, and we had a Zulu cook called Charlie. And I realise now that I could have learned to cook at Charlie's apron strings, but in those days of iniquitous apartheid, it just never occurred to anybody that a posh young white woman would be a cook. So I never. I never went, hardly ever went into the kitchen. I mean, occasionally I would make jam tarts or something and Charlie would help me. It just didn't occur to me. And um, it took going to France to university where I realized that there were all sorts of people could be cooks mm. and, that, and it, that it was a serious profession. A, a landscape very different to mm. that of South Africa that you yes. left behind. What was it like in the 60s in France? You know, what was the scene like? Well, it was terrific. Of course, to me, it was an absolute eye-opener because it was so liberal and wonderful. I mean, I remember the absolute excitement of sitting down in the Boulevard Saint-Michel in a, at an open-air cafe or something, having a coffee, with a whole lot of students who would be from Algeria and Morocco and Germany and all over the place. It, it made me feel that I'd lived a very parochial life. And and that was what apartheid did for you. It, you just you just lived in your own little bubble. You had no real knowledge of anyway. And then were you introduced in you know to the culinary world during that time? What made yeah. you made because you you went abroad to study? What did you study? Uh, oh, I, I was supposed to be going to be a translator. I was going French culture and French civilization, and it was in fact French culture that taught taught me what I would do for my life, which is cooking, because. The culture of French food and um, cooking is so embedded in the whole. I was au pair for a, for a family, and so I saw for a woman firsthand doing her cooking for her children and stuff. And she cooked with fresh ingredients and at the last minute and cared about where the f food came from. And, and I just thought this is so amazing and so interesting. I had never thought preparing food was interesting. And... Um, so I decided I wanted to be a chef. And then, of course, I wanted a restaurant, and then, you know, things took off. The move from Paris to London to actually study, what was... Yeah, yeah, exactly. I went to the Cordon Bleu, and then I left. I started... I had a little bedsitter in um, Earl's Court, and it had... I was on the fourth floor, and it had a, a cooker in the corner. And so I started my business by um, delivering food to people, or going out. You know, I was a cook for hire, really. And what I remember I shall always be grateful for is that my landlady was, um, she had no sense of smell. 
So she had no idea what was going on, and she never came upstairs. So she had no idea what was going on on the fourth floor. You know, the communal bath would be full of my lettuces or, <laughs> or sometimes live crabs or <laughs> whatever, and I'd be slicing smoked salmon on the dressing table. So there were no health and safety rules in those days. <laughs> Just look the other di- look the other way. Yeah. And so I, I started my catering company up there, and then um, you know then I moved to 1965. Four, three or four years later, I moved to um, a little muse cottage and I had a bubble car and I was, was around delivering, um, you know, all sorts of things. Trifle particularly. I was remember. that your speciality? <laughs> a lot of trifle. A lot of, it was very sort of um, classical, uncomplicated, nothing fancy, nothing foreign, nothing vegan, nothing, not even veggie. You know, everything was just meat and two veg really but but nicely done and good ingredients and I remember once um, I had a cat at the time and he used to go adventuring you know he'd climb up onto the onto the roofs and go walk about and sometimes I'd have to get the fire brigade to come get him back again and one day somebody rang me up and they said "Um, do you have a an animal called Benedicat. And I said, oh, my God, is he stuck on your roof? Mm. And he said, no, but his collar tag is stuck in my trifle. <laughs> no, health and safe, no health and safety. <laughs> anyway. I've, I've read about another story about a bunch of live lobsters that were left on a train. Oh, yeah, please, that's right. They're please not... recall. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I just do remember that I, I, um, I did forget a, a basket of lobsters and they went all the way to Cockfosters, you know, which is the end of the line. And I just, I, I have no idea what happened to them, but I always have this vision of this poor train um, cleaner or something opening a basket and finding all these live lobsters in them. That's been a happy payday for them. <laughs> if they knew what they were. <laughs> yeah. um, in uh, 1969, you went over and went on to open your own fine dining restaurant in Notting Hill, which was then awarded a Michelin star. What was the most enjoyable about this? Because this is obviously very different to your catering work. Yeah, yeah you it's know. interesting, isn't it? Um, catering, you know, if I look back on it, I think of catering as the most exciting thing because you have no rehearsals. You know, if you're doing somebody's wedding or some enormous conference lunch or something, it's enormous and it's all about logistics and organizing, which is what I, I really am the champion organizer rather than the champion chef or the champion you know I'm really good at that and I love it so it's very exciting because you don't have a rehearsal every night is a first night it's different every single time because you have different clients and different Mm. they have different needs so that's what I liked about catering the thing I loved about restaurants is that you have the chance to get it better all the time because you're doing much the same thing night after night so you're striving always to make everything, every little bit of it a bit better and the experience for the customer a bit better. And the thing I liked, I, I remember with such pleasure is that if I was off for a night and I wasn't working in the restaurant and I'd go out with friends, I could never resist taking my taxi or if I was driving, driving myself past the, going home, I'd go past my restaurant windows. And it was that l- business of looking through the restaurant windows and seeing this whole room full of people having a good time and the waiters looking smart and the I mean it just and you think we're responsible for that. We did that. That's what that's why we have a restaurant. And 
uh, I mean, I'll never forget that feeling. Also, it has to be said, if the restaurant's stone empty and you drive past at night, you go to bed in a very unhappy mood. <laughs> then you know, yeah. yeah. The other side of restaurant touring yeah. is people not turning up. You know. One question has come in uh, from a salmon sea point asking how much the food culture has changed since you started in the 60s until now. That's such a good question. And to be honest, it takes a book to answer it. But the truth is that when I first came, went to England, I was so disappointed with the food. I mean, it was boring beyond belief. It was mostly brown. <laughs> and it often, even in smart restaurants, it consisted of um, sort of industrial gravy poured over some pre, pre-cooked meat, pretty well unrecognizable. And vegetables came in cartmented is that the word I would mean? You know, um, stainless steel dishes with a mm. division in the middle. And Com- on one side... Compartmented. Com- compartmented. <laughs> <we> compartmented <laughs> um, dishes with, you know, two kinds of potatoes and then cabbage and beans or something. And it didn't matter what you'd ordered. You got the same veg. And it wasn't until the Nouvelle Cuisine revolution when chefs began to look at plates of food and think, what would go best with the salmon? Perhaps it would be fennel or celery or something and they change they change the accompaniments and the flavors and the gravies or the sauces and it became more original and fresher and cooked at the last minute and all that. and now of course i think the big revolution is in street food i just recently um judged uh, the yuba um street uh, uh, food restaurant of the year and it was wonderful because we have so many refugees from other countries who end up in Britain and within a couple of years a lot of them will start little businesses you know with granny's Syrian koftas or something or some Ethiopian or I mean wonderful different dishes from all over the world and they've become the new uh, takeaway food or street food or delivered food and I thought it would all be boring old hamburgers and pizza but not at all. It was the most revelatory, I'm having trouble this morning, revelatory, (laughs) most revelatory experience to judge it. It was Mm. fantastic. Mm. So it's changed amazingly. And of course, there's been the health movement and and move towards um, less meat and more vegan and vegetarian, all of which I approve of because we have to eat less meat if we want to, to survive. And um, so it's very exciting. What's happening in food is exciting. Of course, there's a lot of things that shouldn't be happening at all, like factory farming and, and um, you know, poor people never getting any cooking lessons, so there's no hope of them cooking anything. Uh, you know, if you're really poor and, you, um, and your mum didn't cook, there's not much hope of you living on anything um, healthy because you won't know how to prepare it. Mm. Another message has just come in saying it must have been a risky time then to start a high-end fancy food restaurant back in the 60s. It probably was, you know, but I have never been very good at weighing up the um, the downside. You know, I just get enthusiastic and think, yeah, that'll be a good idea, and I'll have a go. And I, I suppose I just struck it lucky, you know, because it was at a time when there weren't any other women opening restaurants, so I got a lot of publicity just because I was a woman. You know, people often say, was it hard in... A, to be a woman in a man's world. Well, actually, I was terribly lucky because it was the men in the, in the business, like Albert Roux and Anton Mossem and these great top chefs, mm. 
they helped me because they could see I was floundering and that I had no idea what I was doing. And they, they were, and I sort of think they probably wouldn't have bothered if I was a man because it wouldn't have been unusual. They'd never have heard of me if I was just yet another man starting a restaurant. But because I was in the news, because it was I was a woman, so I was very lucky. And also I hit the moment when food was beginning to change and people were beginning to think that pawpaw and pineapple and... Um, were interesting and enjoyable foods. Exactly. Mm. And can you remember what was on that first menu in your first restaurant? I know, it's rather shaming. I, I had a look at it the other day. Um, it was very French-based, but I didn't have... At least it wasn't written in French. I, I was sort of trying very hard not to... I mean, to just be proud of being British. And, and I felt that what we were cooking was English country house cooking like the best cooking you got in a private house. I didn't think the best cooking you got in a restaurant because, frankly, the stuff you got in a restaurant, as mm. I was saying, wasn't too good. Mm. Well, mostly wasn't too good, but there were some pioneers. I mean, Robert Carrier had a fantastic restaurant. Um, so, yeah, no, I'd had, it had Stilton soup on it. I was very proud of Stilton soup because I thought I'd invented it because I went on a press trip because I was writing for the Daily Mail at the time. Um, and I went on a press trip to um, Denmark, and I had a cheese soup made with a, ch a, a, soup, a cheese called Samso. And I thought this would be so much better with Stilton. And so I, it was basically a celery soup with a pile of cheese in it. <laughs> so I went home and wrote a recipe for celery soup with a pile of um, Stilton in it. And it became hugely popular, and other restaurants would steal the idea, and then you'd see it popping up. And catering my catering company did it. I wrote about it in the Daily Mail. It became Prue's thing, Stilton Soup. And I genuinely thought I'd invented it. And then one day I took a book down from one of my shelves, and it was the 1925 Castles, Castles Dictionary of Gastronomy. And it had a Stilton Soup in it which is exactly the same recipe as mine. And that was in 1925. So. Well, maybe you just re, you've reinvigorated it for yeah, that, that like author. That. Um, at 77, you took over from Mary Berry as the judge of the Great British Bake Off. Did you ever imagine never retiring? <laughs> <laughs> I, I had actually thought I had retired at that moment. I had given up doing the Great British Menu, which mm. was a, chef, a professional chef's competition, which I did for... 11 years and when I turned 75 I think it was I thought this is enough I should just stop this so I did and I gave it up and then a little while later I, the Mary Berry decided she didn't want to go on with the bake-off and, and I thought you know I'm absolutely perfect for that job because I've judged so many students both in South Africa mm -hmm. and in and in England in a, at my school of food and wine and I've eaten an enormous amount of fi fine food in my life and I've cooked an enormous amount of fine food in my life so I, I, I actually have the taste buds to do that job but I thought I wouldn't get the job because I thought the Channel 4 would feel it was they had to be really cool and that they wouldn't want another old white lady <laughs> in the job they'd bound to pr get some cool dude you know who was a ter <laughs> terrific cook but Jamaican or mm. something and um, but I'm happy to say they didn't. Well, I think they saw your cool spectacles and your cool, bright <laughs> and cheery clothing, and thought that you were definitely the one for the job. Um, <laughs> and with that, you, your your glasses have become unanimous with you know your I know, entire being. I know people always talk about my glasses. And do you know the fact is I've now had cat cataract op cataract, okay. 
cataract operation, and I can see perfectly well without them. Oh, I've done that part of your... <laughs> but, I, but I can't bear it. I don't like the look of me without them. That Besides was... which, to be honest, Nicola, the truth is that I ha- the, the, these are the Prue-Leith range yes. of glasses. They're called Specs by Prue. <laughs> And I, I mean, if I didn't wear them, my yeah. own glasses, well, I mean, that wouldn't look good, did it? Well, a message came in saying, please ask Prue if she wears plus ones or plus twos. <laughs> so there's your answer. Plus zeros. They're just the, the look, which I think is a, is a fitting look. And your necklace is made from... Um, uh, tin- ring pulls. Yes. You know, ring pulls off a can. I know I, uh, my husband bought this for me yesterday in, in the waterfront in the craft centre. Yes. That craft centre is so wonderful. It is just every time I come... There are different um, artists there doing things. And th- this woman just um, turns ring pulls into earrings and, and necklaces. And I just think they're lovely. And they cost nothing. Yeah. You know. yeah. No, it's beautiful. Um, just South Africa, you know, the, the hospitality industry took such a big downer globally during uh, COVID, of the challenging times, especially after the pandemic, and then also the rising costs of nearly everything. <coughs> From the basic restaurant to the fine dining experiences, do you think working in the hospitality industry is often overlooked? Do you know, in a way, I'm hoping this will lead to some... At the moment, of course, you've, all over the world, uh, there are restaurants that can't open all the time because they can't get the staff. A lot of it is because people, uh, people just don't want to come back to work. They like they liked they like being at home, especially if they were furloughed and were paid as well. <laughs> so they they don't want to work, um, or they just don't think. And especially with the catering trade, I've been saying for years that until customers will pay more for food, we'll never be able to fix the problem. And it, in England anyway, the cost of of restaurant food is way below. That in the, in the, in America or in um, or in Europe, because Britons don't really value food in the same way that that the Europeans do. The rest mm. of the Europe does. And the fact is that it, restaurant staff have been exploited for years. I mean, they have had long hours, miserable conditions, low pay, and the only advantage of it is that you rise very rapidly. If you're any good, you rise rapidly because so many people leave the industry because they can't take it. So that if you can stick it, you end up being very well paid, top head chef or restaurant manager or top of the you know head barman or something. You're well paid and it's decent. But that's no way to do it. We should treat every everybody properly. Mm. And so I'm hoping that this will make restaurateurs wake up and just charge more. And I think they could do it. I mean, if you think last night in the the um, waterfront, I, we couldn't get, we must have tried 10 restaurants before we got into um, Tang, and then we have to wait, we had to wait for ages. It's not as if they're not the customers. Customers are still flooding restaurants because people, after the pandemic, particularly want that relief of being outside where there are other people and not just being at home. So they could shove the prices up and pay people more mm, and mm. and start working on the idea of a, you know, I mean, I, I wouldn't dare say a four-day week because, you know, maybe officers could do a four-day week. But it would be a huge step forward if they just do a five-day week and and stop doing split shifts. Split shifts are deathly for If you have to work um, five hours in the morning and three hours in the evening and you get a couple of hours off in the middle of the day, what good is it to you? You're mm. miles from home. You don't, you're not paid enough to go and sit in a fancy restaurant and, or a pub and, or, or belong to a club or something. What do you do with that two hours? Mm. Mm. It's, it's, 
I've been saying this for years, but it is disgraceful. It's time for that change. Yeah. I have a message from Brian. Please ask Prue about her revolutionizing British rail food in the 70s for the 125 inner city trains. A clear fan over there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what. um, I'm always accredited with um, uncurling the British rail sandwich. I mean, it was a sort of joke because the British rail used to make a sandwich which was cheese, cheese and tomato. Mm. Well, you could get cheese sandwich or tomato sandwich or cheese and tomato sandwich. Three options. <laughs> Three options, and they're all in white yeah. bread. All in white bread. And when I became a director of British Rail, which was, had rather more responsibilities than just worrying about the sandwiches, but I, because I was interested in that, I got stuck into the sandwiches as well, and and also things like decent coffee and decent ice cream and decent, decent everything and. And, and and tea that came out of, you know, anyway, we just tried to help every, all the food um, offer. And the sandwich one um, was quite funny because the, the the people who made the sandwiches said kept saying to me, but look, they, you know, we sell more sandwiches than any other organisation in Britain. This is Britain's most popular um, sandwich. And, and we make it with Britain's most popular cheese, which was Kraft cheese slices. And Britain's most popular butter, which was New Zealand anchor butter, <laughs> and Funny. Britain's most popular bread, which was Mother's Pride. Mm. And I said, but of course it's the most popular sandwich. There isn't any other. And we own all the sandwich bars, because at that time there weren't sandwich bar- mm. really nice sandwich shops. There was no Pret. There was no um, very few proper sandwich shops. And so, of course, the rail, the ones we own so much property around the stations and stuff, of course we had. Anyway, um, what I did was I got a tray full of sandwiches and we made up various sandwiches, including the classic cheese, white bread cheese sandwich, which, which was perfectly nice. And we, t- we cut them into little triangles like at a cocktail party and walked around Paddington Station asking people to just have one. And I just, we just wanted to count how quickly the rows disappeared, you know, who, which was the most popular. Mm. And, and I'm glad to say, I think the prawn cocktail one was the most popular, and then the ham and cheese one, and then, the, guess what, the tomato and cheese one. <laughs> so, but at least it meant we got a salami. We had, then, we, then we had a whole lot of decent sandwiches, and we put them into proper Tetra Pak boxes, mm. and they used to be wrapped up in just in a thing of polythene. Was this early inspiration for your book, Bliss on Toast? <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't, but it must be something. To, I mean, I am very keen on bread. And I think that one of the, one of the inspirations for, it, for Bliss on Toast is the fact that during lockdown, so many people were baking and making sourdough and focaccia and, and lovely breads. And and then the supermarkets took it up, and so that supermarkets in Britain are a good supermarket will have all sorts of breads. So I started thinking it was that what was happening in lockdown is I was cooking supper every night for two people, mm. me and my husband, and and that's pretty boring, you know. Mm. And 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 I'm a cook, so I if I get a chicken, I'll make it, the whole thing into a casserole. And then I'd, you know, we'd eat it, and then I'd have half of it left, so we'd eat it again, and then I'd have a bit of it left, and I think, and I'm too Scottish and mean to throw anything away, yeah. so then I think, oh well, we'll put it on toast. And so, my husband kept finding himself with something on toast for supper, um, and I'd make it as look as good as possible, and try and pair it with something interesting, like I'd put a bit of, I don't know, pickled fennel with the fish, or. 
I just jazz it up, you know, grilled tomato with the, on top of the stew or whatever it was that I was plonking on the toast. And then I, so we started taking photographs of it, of these sandwiches, of these pie, they were stuff on toast, really, just on toast. And then I put, uh, I, I began to sell them to a magazine called The Oldie. So we had every, every issue would have a different bliss on toast. And then, of course, me, being me, I thought, oh, this will make a book. Definitely. <laughs> so and that's what it book. became. Yes. <laughs> it's uh, described as much as a tool book for quick fridge raids as it is for inspirational and seasonal delights. Ideal for home, busy home cooking uh, and the busy home cook who loves a full and balanced plate. The recipes are incredibly versatile and perfect for any time of the day. Tomato, shallots, oregano on black olive toast. Think grilled chicken tikka with yogurt on naan, smoked salmon, wasabi and avocado on multigrain bread. The list is endless. There are 75 recipes. Is there one that stands out? Well, do you know what? There's one that always makes me laugh, which is very South African. Um, I don't know if you still have, or, or, or we used to call it anchovy toast. Yes. Anch- anchovy toast, yes. I'd say now. Um, which is just basically toasted, anchovy spread yeah. on top. And I, this was a great treat in my um, childhood. And I remember going with my mother to a coffee bar in Cape Town years and years ago, about the first coffee bar that existed. And we sat up at the bar and we were having coffee and, and you could order anchovy toast. And the chap next to me, on the right of me, who I didn't know from Adam, he had a plate of anchovy toast. And I was chattering away to my mother. And I took a piece of his anchovy toast just without thinking. I mean, it was there. It was what I felt like. <laughs> and I got it halfway into my mouth when I realized what I'd done. And so I pulled it out again and said, oh, I'm so sorry. And tried, <laughs> tried to give it back to him. He said, I think you can keep it. <laughs> but I, anyhow, so I put anchovy toast in there. and But I think I put it with a bit of pickled pear. And, you know, something sweet with anchovies is lovely. Mm. No, there's a big, wide variety of... of of different uh, recipes that inspire, you know, daily cooking and also using leftovers to yeah, reimagine. That's right. Uh, I'm hoping that people will use it more as a springboard for ideas. I'm not really expecting anybody to look at it and think, oh, well, she's used um, seeded toast, seeded bread, or she's used focaccia, so mm. I'll have to. Mm. Nonsense. You can do any bread mm. and you can do any combinations you like, but I just, I just did the ones I like. And now, ever since then, I keep seeing things, you know, eating things. And, and John says to me often, that would be good on toast. That would be. So I keep, you know, maybe I'll do volume two one day. Yeah. Would you say that bread is the one thing that you should always have in your kitchen? Yeah. I can't imagine life without bread. Any other ingredients that you the always na- have? The nice thing about bread is that it, it means you don't have to do rice and, and, mm. and pasta. And you don't, your carbohydrates are there and they're also crunchy. They add a bit of crunch and interest. Mm. And, um, and a little thing on toast, a little pile of excellent ingredients on toast excuses you from doing all the veg and the other gravy and the other stuff. And, you know, most of those recipes, um, I mean, all of them, you could do entirely from store cupboard ingredients or supermarket ingredients. You could buy everything. But we did put in the back some of the recipes that I think people might like to make themselves. I mean, for example, flatbread. Um, if you buy flatbread, I, I, I often buy it and I keep it in the freezer and keep slices separately so that you can just pull them out and, and stick them in a hot pan. But if you want to make it, and it's very satisfactory to make flatbread because it's easy and it's quick and you, you don't have to wait for it to rise, 
and um, so and things like hollandaise. You can buy jar, a jar of hollandaise. I think that if you make it yourself, and you can make it in a liquidizer very easily, um, it is, it tastes better to me. But it, the one from the jar is delicious. It's just not quite like the real thing. Mm. But it is very very good. It still makes a great mm. a great placenta. So you can do it without cooking. You can it can be just an assembly job. Another question has come through, Prue, asking who the most interesting person is that you've cooked for. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, um, I once gave the Queen a cup of tea and failed to do it very efficiently. <laughs> Poor woman. She likes. Um, she liked um, strong black tea, and she got weak, lemony. <laughs> Did she voice her? Yeah, just, I, I was just so nervous, and I, I was, you know, just, just, just messed up, yeah. frankly. But she was such a trooper. She didn't complain. She just got on and drank it. Um, but I've um, I've cooked for all sorts of people. Um, most interesting, um, I suppose, Nelson Mandela. Uh, he shook my hand, and I'll never forget it. And, I mean, so many people have said this, that he had that sort of charisma that makes you think you are the only person in the world, and what you're saying is really interesting. And, uh, you know, I'll just never forget it. So, yeah, he was definitely... Do you recall what you made for him? Well, I was my I can't say I did the cooking, mm. but my catering was doing the food at the yeah. event that he was he was there. Oh. It was a charity job Phenomenal. for his um, children's mm. foundation. We have another message from Rebecca in Port Elizabeth. Hi, Prue. I was wondering if you could offer some insight from your experience on the direction you feel desserts and pastries will move over the next five years. How will we drive sustainable eating practices and nutrition-conscious cooking paired with social media heightened need for visually stunning foods? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) This is a very big question. It came in via email, I have you know it. (laughs) Well, um, I'll tell you what. I think that depends where where you stand. I mean, if you're a professional pastry chef, you are going to have to rely on the irresistibleness of your creations because nobody can pretend that eating lots of cream and lots of cake and lots of, um, you know, boozy pastries is good for you. Mm. But I would never, ever want a life without them. I think it's all about balance and trying not to have too much. But if you're a, a pastry chef, then you have to sell your goods. And I think that they're so irresistible I think they just have to go on being classic, beautiful, and if it's if things are properly sourced and sustainably produced, it's all you can do. You can't also say to yourself they've got to be healthy. They can't be healthy if they're going to be proper patisserie. Prue, your one-woman live show. Oh my God! <laughs> <laughs> you used to obviously cooking and presenting in front of a television or on a television, <laughs> but I've read online that you're quite nervous. <laughs> oh God! I, I, mean, I, I don't know how I agreed to this. I must be off my head. I mean, at my advanced age, it's no time to go st- go on tour, you know. But I am doing it. But I went to America. Well, I, first of all, I did f- um, four tryouts in in England, in Bath and in Leamington Spa. And they weren't worked very well because, um, you know, people laughed at the right places. I just chatter away about my life. And then at th- and then the audience ans- asks questions, a bit like what we're doing mm. now, except on a stage with 
Um, a lot of people watching. There was a lot of people watching. And a, a big screen behind me, which pops up with little clips of my television shows or funny bits and jokes and photographs of my children and, you know, all sorts of stuff comes goes on at the back. So if people get really bored with what I'm saying, they can just watch the pictures. Um, and in England, they worked really well. And the first lot of people... Who, the thing is, if you do a tryout, the audience get discounted tickets um, on condition, not on condition, but the, uh, there's, the understanding is that they'll fill in a little questionnaire and it, all it says is, would you recommend this to mm. your friends? And on the first night, we got 100% of people saying, yes, they would. So then I couldn't very well say, well, I don't want to do this. <laughs> but I didn't enjoy it because I was so frightened. My, my heart was banging so. And I, as you say, I'm used to being on stage, but I was so nervous. Um, it's all to do with the technical stuff and the fact that it's in a real live theater. Mm. Anyway. I don't know why I was so frightened, but um, so I did that um, in England, and I, and I thought, I think I've made a mistake, but I've got to go through with it. I can hardly say to the promoters, we're getting all the satisfaction rates, but I'm not doing it. Mm. So I said, yes, okay. And then we went to America, and because the Americans are just so much more over the top, and generally they express themselves more loudly, should we say, I mean... Joanna Lumley said an interesting thing to me because I rang her up to ask her, should I do, do this? And she said, she said, go for it because she said, you've got to remember that everybody who buys a ticket loves you anyway. They're, they're there because they like you. Yeah. So they want to have a good time. They're on your side. And she was proved absolutely right because when I walked onto the stage in Los Angeles, the audience, they went wild before I'd, I said a word. I hadn't opened my mouth and they were clapping and stamping and sh shrieking and hollering and shouting, we love you, Prue. <laughs> Completely ridiculous. I had to sort of calm everybody down yeah. and say, sort of, shh, sit down. <laughs> but but sit I thought, how can I top that? You know, you get a standing ovation before you've said Even a word. Said anything. <laughs> well, then you knew that you were meant to be there and the 100% feedback rate was there for a reason. Yeah, so, so I reckoned, look, and then, of course, I loved it because mm. I'm, you know, of course, uh, I, I just, a great warm rush of, admiration and affection coming from the mm. audience. I sailed through it. I thought I was terrific. I thought I was born to do this. This is amazingly good fun. And um, anyway, so I uh, I came off stage on a sort of high and, and the promoter took me out to um, have a Chinese meal afterwards and I fell asleep at the table. <laughs> well, then you knew. <laughs> I just crashed down. Phenomenal. Thank you very, very much. I can't believe an hour has passed and we've been oh, nattering away. Nicola, thank you so much. Really, it's been really, really good lovely fun. to chat. Thank you. Bliss on Toast is published by Bloomsbury, distributed locally by Jonathan Ball Publishers. The book is available in all good bookstores, but be warned that the minute you start paging through it, you're going to start mouth-watering or a mouth-watering journey. But remember that any leftovers can really just be added on top of toast and they're just as good as the night before. Thanks for listening to this episode of PageCast. We love hearing from you. So if you'd like to get in touch, please contact us at pagecastpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep reading and listening.